Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 23rd of October, 2023, just after one o'clock. Well, in fact, it's 10 past one now. So apologies for the delay this morning, this afternoon. Uh, we have had a technical issue with one of our streams, which is uh, sadly not resolved. So hopefully everybody has found themselves uh, onto a stream that is actually working. Um, we're going to get straight on here. We've got uh, David Scott joining us today, uh, Mark Anderson as well. So thank you both for joining us. We're going to get straight on here with Andrew Bridgen in the House of Commons uh, on Friday afternoon. So first of all, let's have a look at uh, how many people turned up uh, to take part in the uh, debate on excess mortality, excess deaths. And as you can see, the chamber mainly empty. So a few Conservatives, uh, one uh, Labour Party, who of course uh, was required to turn up as being in the shadow cabinet. Um, we're going to start off with a little bit of video here um, and uh, let's have a look, just the last couple of uh, seconds of Andrew Bridgen's uh, conclusion and the response from the public gallery. In conclusion, Mr Deputy Speaker, the experimental COVID-19 vaccines are not safe and they're not effective, despite there only being limited interest in the chamber from colleagues I and mean, I'm very grateful for those who have attended. We can see from the public gallery there is considerable public interest. I would implore all members of the House present and those not support calls for a three-hour debate on this important issue. And Mr Deputy Speaker, this might be the first debate on excess deaths in our Parliament. Indeed, it might be the first debate on excess deaths in the world. But very sadly, I promise you, it won't be the last. Thank you, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. Can I start by congratulating the Honourable Member for North West Leicestershire for securing uh, this important debate. I do only have five minutes of the 30 minutes uh, debate to respond, so I will try and cover all the points uh, if I can. Can I start by acknowledging that he is correct. We have seen an increase in excess deaths in the last year. However, his analysis is uh, something I, I will disagree with, because the causes um, that he refers to um, are, are simply um, uh, do not uh, bear to the statistics that we have. There so that at the end there was Maria Caulfield. Now, she is Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Mental Health and Women's Health. And David, my first comment here is, aside from the uh, amazing response in the public gallery, uh, the fact is that what, so my question was, why was she speaking on behalf of the government on this? And that, the reason for that is because one of the roles that the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Mental Health and Women's Health undertakes is the role of patient safety. And that has got to be a significant representation of what the UK government, the importance that the UK government gives to the issue of patient safety. Yes, uh, I mean, uh, just, just very briefly, that response from the public gallery uh, in over half a century, I've never heard anything like that. That's absolutely unique. Uh, certainly, what, was, what, what were her first words regarding excess deaths, regarding the statistics? He is correct. And then we had a lot of uh, 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 sounds coming out as, as words were sought to explain while, why being correct was actually, in a funny kind of way, being incorrect. The government don't have a case here. The statistics, the data are pointing relentlessly towards this being a problem. The numbers are huge. And the fact that this was an almost empty house is an absolute disgrace. Uh, it is indeed. Uh, and of course, that's why it was scheduled for uh, Wednesday, or sorry, Friday afternoon, because, of course, uh, the excuse, as we showed on Friday, uh, was that uh, many MPs had to go back to see their constituents. Uh, now, Maria Caulfield then uh, gave uh, some uh, information, uh, but it was the end. I have to admit, I almost fell off my chair when this happened. And for those that have experienced um, rare uh, side effects from the vaccine, we had a debate earlier this afternoon about that. We do have the Vaccine Damage Payment Scheme, which um, offers a payment of 120,000 if that is uh, one show to be... Order, order. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm terribly sorry. The House stands adjourned.
So just as she is starting to get into the issue of the pitiful £120,000 payment that's paid to the vaccine injured, uh, the deputy speaker simply, because it was 3 p.m., uh, simply decided that's the end and uh, he took his bauble away. So there you go. Uh, we'll get some comment from David in a second on this, but let's just uh, move on through uh, because what I wanted to uh, focus on here was the actual excess mortality statistics because one of the things that Maria Caulfield said during that was that uh, don't worry, don't worry that there's excess death because people are still dying of the normal things, particularly uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. So that was one of her positions. And I just wanted to bring up, first of all, this graph, which shows excess mortality um, since uh, the mid middle of 2020 uh, for people who have uh, been registered as having died from dementia and Alzheimer's. And obviously the light, green, the light green there is excess mortality. The dark green below the line is below excess mortality. And what you can see is that very significantly throughout that whole uh, years, throughout those whole years, uh, Deaths from dementia and Alzheimer's are below the five-year average. Uh, when we look at uh, the all-cause mortality statistics, however, it's a very different picture. Uh, so we are now looking at uh, including those dementia deaths, but those dementia deaths were below the five-year average, and therefore all of the other reasons are much higher than the five-year average. Uh, that, I think, is a very significant uh, graphic. Uh, we'll explain where this has come from in a second. It's all Office for National Statistics data, but I want to explain where this, these actual graphs have come from in a second. Just coming on to the issue of not only deaths, but long-term illness uh, very briefly. Uh, and what we can see here is, uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, these are responses to the uh, Office for National Statistics workforce survey. And they're showing a plateau of long-term sickness in 2020 a fall in early 2021 and a sharp rise after the vaccine rollout. This is for women. Uh, the picture is more or less the same for men. Um, and actually, if you look in other countries as well, it's a very similar picture as well. Um, so where have this, uh, where has this data come from? It's been collated via the ONS uh, by HART, which is a health advisory and recovery team. And I very much encourage everybody to have a look at this article. Trends in Excess Deaths, 20th of October, 2023. It's talking about Andrew Bridgen, but it's going into a lot of detail uh, on the graphs that we don't have time to do on today's news program. Uh, but I strongly recommend people have a look at that uh, and make a decision for yourselves. Uh, and I, <clears throat> I want to uh, come on to this. Matt Letizia was tweeting out, many people were tweeting this out uh, because, uh, and Matt Letizia is saying, wow, during Andrew Bridgen's speech in Parliament today on excess deaths, these are the overlays were put on the bottom of his live speech on the BBC. So let's just look at the four examples that he has chosen. There are more. I think there were about eight different uh, uh, overlays that they put on or lower thirds that they put on here. It says official vaccines do not contain any ingredients that cause harm in such small amounts. Uh, another one, the NHS says COVID-19 vaccines used in the UK are safe and the best protection from getting seriously ill with the disease. Another one, official NHS guide, guidance states that Government-administered vaccines are safe and often essential for public health. And another one, most people with allergies, including food or penicillin allergies, can be vaccinated against COVID-19. So, you know, this was the response of the BBC to, to uh, Andrew Bridgen's statement, uh, his speech. Uh, and, uh, well, you can make up your minds about that as well. Uh, and then finally on this, I just want to make the point uh, that tomorrow uh, in the uh, Commons Chamber, uh, Andrew Bridgen will be for bringing forward a motion under the 10-minute rule. Uh, this is a bill, effectively, parliamentary sovereignty, brackets, referendums, and he's uh, really trying to get some movement on the uh, opposition to the World Health, World Health Organization, uh, interna international health regulations and the various treaties associated with that. Uh, and so uh, keep an eye on Parliament tomorrow as well. I believe that's uh, early in the morning. Uh, and David, uh, let's just end uh, with this. Yes, here we have uh, the empty benches, but the march reserved for members sponsored by Pfizer. And I thought that was a very good meme. And I'd just like to finish off by saying that the cutting off of that debate, just as the um, quite pitiful damages for people killed or very seriously injured by the vaccine was being uh, discussed, was one of the coldest things I've ever seen. And I just wonder if uh, Alex Mitchell, 
who's lucky to be alive and who lost his leg to the AstraZeneca vaccine, perhaps through his um, his prosthetic leg at the television when that happened. Uh, if he did, I certainly wouldn't blame him. Uh, indeed. And I just want to mention that on Wednesday's programme, we'll, ha- we'll have one member of that public gallery uh, on the uh, U- on the UK Column News, and that's Alex Kelly, who was one of the people that uh, formed the UK CV family uh, bereaved group. So uh, that will be on Wednesday. David, let's uh, move on to economy. Indeed. Well, we have... Um we have problems. So the New York Times here is reporting. Uh, it's, it's a very bad headline, but the headline's actually optimistic when you read further. US deficit pegged at 1.7 trillion, uh, effectively doubled in 2023. Uh, and they say, well, actually, if you take student loan effects into, into effect, it's, it's actually doubled because it's now 2 trillion uh, and it was 1 trillion in 2022. This is an eye-wateringly high deficit. Um, now, I just want to exp- explain firstly what this means in terms of what the the uh, American government and the Federal Reserve System uh, and, and the Treasury are trying to do. Right? They are selling debt into the market. Um, they've, uh, I've got a, a quick calculation here. We've got a $2 trillion deficit. So just to pay for the government as they go along, we need $2 trillion sales of debt of treasury debt into the market, but we're quantitative tightening. We're trying to undo the quantitative easing from during COVID and the decade preceding COVID. Um, so that's going to be another 1.2 trillion. And of this debt stock of 33 trillion total debt, 5 trillion rolls over this year. So that's 8.2 trillion in one year, which is $680 billion a month every month. Now, my question is, who's buying this? Who can possibly be buying it? Because the Fed aren't buying it. They're doing the reverse. They're selling. Um, The Chinese aren't buying it. The Japanese aren't. Who's buying this? It just looks to be impossible, certainly at that rate. And the rate is the price, and the price is everything. So just to look at where we are with uh, American finances, American government finances, we have here federal government current expenditures on interest payments. It's a little out of date, but you see it was 900 billion. By now it's over a trillion, now on interest payments alone. Now, trillion's a very large number. What are we comparing that to? We're comparing it to taxation income. So we look at the next graph, we see that. Taxation, oh dear, taxation income is falling. It's down to 2.8 trillion. So already we're more than a third of Total revenue that that they're bringing in um, is going out in interest payments. Um, And of course, what's the total debt level? If we look at the next chart, we see it's going up faster than ever, apart from during COVID. uh, And it's up at uh, 32, $33 trillion. Now, um, and then what's the rate? What's the price? Well, the current price is about 5.5%. We see in this next chart, uh, federal funds effective rate, 5.5%. At five and a bit percent, if they were to refinance all of the all of the thirty three trillion, uh, then uh, they end up spending about sixty seventy percent of everything they bring in from tax on debt. If it gets to seven and a half or eight percent, America's done because everything that's coming in in tax is going out in interest payments, and the whole system breaks down. So before that point is reached, uh, they will be forced to come in change quantitative tightening to quantitative easing, or we'll call it something else, buy the government debt, force down interest rates, print money, and tank the dollar. They will not have another response. And this inflationary environment that we'll be in is also very bad for stability of the world, and indeed for war, because what's a good way of generating a lot of inflation? Well, war always works. So very troubling times if you are on planet Earth. Which takes us to Scotland. Um, which takes us to Scotland, and uh, the <laughs> you have to you have to hand it to Hamza Youssef, right? There's not many people can actually do this. Just as the entire government bond system is collapsing, Hamza decides, I know what we'll do. We're going to issue government bonds from the Scottish government. 
uh, which doesn't have a central bank and can't print funds. And But we're going to issue these these bonds, and they've been called kilts because it's a play on the word gilts, which is UK government bonds. And basically, this is a non-entity. This is this is uh, a headline for the conference, but it just shows that they are only able to come up with ideas that are already being seen to fail. There are no ideas of anything positive uh, coming from the SNP or the Scottish government at all. Yeah, okay, thank you. Brilliant, David. And uh, look, uh, on Friday, I was talking about the fact that the European Central Bank has decided to proceed on the next phase of the Digital Europe Project, as they're calling it. Uh, This is the European uh, Central Bank Digital Currency. I just want to briefly mention that uh, Reuters has published uh, an opinion piece on this, Time for Central Bank Digital Currencies to Prove Their Worth. Uh, And they're saying, you know, they're making the point that a few countries have introduced central bank digital currencies uh, China is trialing a prototype. Uh, India is gearing up for a pilot, uh, but that th- the Europeans are moving ahead faster than everybody else. Uh, and they're also making the point that in Nigeria, for example, where uh, this has actually been rolled out, uh, it's not extreme. In fact, it's not only not popular, it's extremely unpopular. Uh, and uh, the, the Nigerians saying uh, protests on it. Uh, but Mark, uh, this brings us to the United States and Welcome to the program, MasterCard. What are they up to with their CBDCs? Well, yeah, this is just a miscellaneous item for today. Uh, and I'm glad you brought this up, Mike, so we can kind of co-mingle what we're talking about here. MasterCard, the second largest payment processing corporation nationwide or worldwide, excuse me, has announced the successful completion of a pilot program that enabled central bank digital currencies to be tokenized, wrapped, onto different blockchains, giving customers a way to participate in commerce across multiple blockchains with increased security and ease. So they're really marketing this here. The solution was created as part of a research project being conducted by the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Digital Finance Corporation Research Center that is exploring the potential cases or usage cases for central bank digital currencies in Australia, according to MasterCard. Uh, This is just one of many examples, as we're hearing, that all over the place, and especially in about the last four to six weeks, all of a sudden we're seeing an explosion of headlines that uh, central bank digital currencies are being given a serious look. They're doing these trial runs, trial balloons, and and all these different ways to kind of sell and promote the idea. But as you mentioned, Mike, when reality comes into focus, like in Nigeria, uh, it's not necessarily going to be people-friendly. So we got to keep an eye on this, especially given the denials by the Federal Reserve System that the Fed now ultra-fast payment system has nothing to do, they say, with bringing central bank digital currencies here to the states. But I beg to differ. I'm seeing increased evidence that they they do maybe co-mingle. Maybe they're not the exact same thing, but they need one another, Fed now and central bank digital currencies, in order to work in the states. So we're right on the cusp of this, and it, it deserves very close scrutiny. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Let's uh, let's come. Uh, well, let's just say this: if you like what the UK column is doing, and you would like to help us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there. You can pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, uh, and uh, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. And Mark, uh, we have uh, a new article from you on uh, the pandemic treaty. Yeah, thanks, Mike, for posting this. UN moves to advance pandemic treaty and regulations signaling urgent need for public intervention. Yeah, the long and the short of it here is that while we're focused on and and it, and you know, uh, uh, justifiably so, while we're focused on what's going on in uh, Gaza and Israel and other key issues, um, what's moving steadily is the uh, move toward a world pandemic treaty and the international health regulations, pretty relentlessly, really. And this gives readers not only pretty much the full story, but a lot of uh, key options that they can exercise to intervene or get involved and make their voices known. And I'll be uh, talking about other ways people can get their voices known in um, subsequent editions of UK Column News. Okay, thank you, Mark. And a final reminder or another reminder that uh, the 5G expose videos are up now that uh, the live stream, the full live stream was up until this point, but over the weekend, we got the individual 
uh, the, the individual videos separated out. So uh, please uh, have a look at those, uh, share them as widely as you possibly can. Uh, this is an important topic and we need to uh, get some serious discussion on it. Uh, okay, let's uh, move on then to Israel. Uh, David, uh, the news is not great. The news is not great. It's it's actually much better than, frankly, we had feared, though, because we're now more than two weeks in since the horrific attack of October 7. Um, and the, the main ground war in Gaza has not yet been launched. So every day that passes is more day, more time for some diplomacy, more time for something to be put in place to help the people of Gaza, and more time for cooler heads to prevail in Israel. Um, but whether that's going to maintain for much longer, we're not so sure. Here we see Reuters are reporting that Israel is mounting limited ground raids into, into Gaza. Uh, Hamas, uh, Hamas says it's uh, engaged the attackers. Um, the Israeli military reports that this, these raids were limited um, uh, and went in overnight. And the airstrikes were also focusing on sites where Palestinian militants were assembling to attack any wider Israeli invasion. The invasion we're all hoping is not forthcoming. Um, we have a couple of other examples of what's going on here. This is a, it's a, there's a lot happening. This is going to be a case of picking a few, uh, a, a, a few stories to give an indication of the nature of the, of, of what's unfolding. So here we've got the Times of Israel reporting, um, IDF and settlers uh, allegedly bind, strip, beat, burn, and urinate on three Palestinians in the West Bank. So this is a group of soldiers and settlers carried out a ruthless assault on three Palestinians um, who were essentially minding their own business in Central West Bank last week, days after the Hamas group's terror attack on October 7. So we see here um, uh, horrendous reply reprisals on people who have absolutely nothing to do uh, with the original event. Um, and then that's, this takes us to what's happening in... Sorry, I would actually point out one other thing on that last story. Um, the, 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 these sorts of attacks, whichever side you sympathise with, have to be, have to be um, condemned without equivocation, right? It's not, this is bad, but look what the other side did, right? This is bad and, and those men deserve justice and those men deserve to be able to live safely in their homes. It's not but, it's and. And this is an important point that people on both sides are often forgetting. Um, this takes us to Gaza. Um, there was an attack on a compound of a church um, in which many people were sheltering. We have here uh, the priest from the church speaking about what happened. Yesterday night, about 8 o'clock, the Israeli army hit the building of the Greek Orthodox Church in Gaza of St. Porphyrios. This building, it's, it, it is the offices of the church. And it was inside, inside in the building, about 150 persons. So they hit it and they killed too many people. So in the ruins, we try now to take out the killed people. We have a question. What for? What for they killed innocent people, children, babies, old people, sick people who had come in the church to have the protection? And that's an excellent question. This is one that actually that, that does need to be put to the uh, the Israeli authorities, the IDF. Um, there's been a lot of concentration on the strike at the hospital, which was actually a rocket fired by a Palestinian terror organisation. But that question, that question needs an answer. Um, and we also go finally in this section uh, to the border with Lebanon, where there's also fighting going on. Nothing as intense but it's still happening and it's very dangerous. Here we see uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alim Abdallah, uh, age 40, a Druze commander in the IDF. He was killed near Lebanon um, and uh, fighting to defend his country from Hezbollah attacks. Uh, it says Abdallah, a married father of three, hailed from a northern Druze village, 
and had been in the military for close to 23 years. His cousin, Fahed Abdullah, Abdullah means slave of Allah, so there's more to this than people often pretend, uh, said Ali was cut above the rest, a huge loss for his family and for the Druze community and for the IDF. So we see here it's more complicated than people paint, and also the violence uh, is spreading to at least some extent to the northern border with Lebanon, also um, a, a threatening uh, a feature that, that, that uh, suggests escalation could easily occur. Um, and I just wanted, uh, David, to finally mention the uh, issue of the aid convoys. Uh, now, I believe there are two have finally got through, but even so, uh, the amount of uh, relief which is getting through is, <laughs> to say it's woefully inadequate, doesn't even scratch the surface. So uh, the first uh, the first aid convoy, I believe, uh, contained uh, 44,000 bottles of water. Um, which the UN here is suggesting is, or UNICEF was suggesting, was just enough for 22,000 people for a single day. So, in other words, basically nothing. Um, so, you know, th this is uh, this is definitely an area that needs to be addressed and urgently. We'll come on to the issue of uh, who's pushing for war and who's pushing for peace in, in a minute. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, David, quite a lot of protests going on around the world. Uh, so, uh, sorry, this was. Uh, uh, this was Reuters, uh, global protests in support of Palestinians' rallies for hostages trapped in Gaza. Uh, 100,000 in London or so was what the uh, even the Israelis were admitting. Yes, there was very large protests in London and elsewhere uh, and all around the world in favour of the Palestinian cause. And there were protests of quite a different mood, um, generally speaking, the following day. Um, uh, essentially a, a vigil for the people who are uh, kidnapped and are currently being held by uh, Hamas in Gaza. Uh, so we see here still some both of those. Um, the phrase no justice, no peace is not a peace rally, I would point out, and I feel that that really is what it should have been. Um, but obviously a lot of people who are attending these are there for peace, um, but there are many other voices, and we'll come to one or two of them, who are saying things which are much more dangerous. Uh, but don't worry, Greta Thunberg, Greta's here to lead everybody uh, into the path of righteousness. She stands with Gaza um, and climate justice. So there we go. These things are related. And she got into a bit of trouble here because the little the little cuddly toy there, that's, that's a thing to signal her emotional state because she's got autism. Uh, but it's an octopus and an octopus is an anti-Semitic trope used by the Nazis. So she was accused of... Um, being an anti-Semite and 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 virtue signal or signalling to other other um, Nazis who hate Jews with her little octopus, uh, so she had to pull the tweet that shows that if you if you've got people who actually know nothing about the subject area and maybe have mental health problems, it's maybe not the best people to be leading the world's discourse on this. But I feel quite sorry for her, uh, nonetheless, uh, stumbling into that one uh, unaware and. Um, some of the uh, protests have, have had worrying signs. So here we see, I think, a Norwegian, I understand a Norwegian student in Warsaw, uh, holding up a sign saying, keep the world clean um, by, by binning Israel or binning the Jews. It's not entirely clear what she means. Uh, that's a bit worrying because that's essentially the Hitlerian position on this. Um, and we're seeing people <sighs> duped and 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 deceived into adopting positions which are very, very harmful, and if and if followed through upon, would be catastrophic. I've got an example here uh, of a man um, in in a British protest in favour of the Palestinians talking about destroying Israel as a solution. The only way there will be peace is until Israeli apartheid is smashed. The only way there will be peace is if Israel is torn down from the ground up and the Palestinians have the right for their, win back their right to self-determination and fight racism, fight imperialism will be on the streets every week, every day, every, every year until Palestine is free from the river to the sea. That is what from the river to the sea means. It means there is no Israel because there can be no peace 
while there is in Israel. So, uh, essentially, the position here is the solution to what he perceives as genocide is more genocide because it's okay when we do it. Um, this is this is ignorant speaking. This is someone who has got an emotional reaction, which is understandable. But what he's advocating is horrendous and would, uh, amongst other things, generate huge loss of life in the Palestinian population that he pretends to care for. People you would think would be more responsible, but. Uh, Apparently not. Uh, one more example of irresponsible. Uh, here we have a, a smiling teenager holding a sign. Zionism is the new Nazism. Really, it's not. We might explore why she thinks it is uh, in extra time. Um, Zionism and Nazism are both nationalist movements. There's some, there's some similarity. There are many nationalist movements in the world. Nazism was something uh, a little bit different. Um, this is just trying to label people so that you can then dehumanise them enough uh, so that you don't have to care about the outcome uh, of anything that might happen to them. This is very dangerous as well and is not the sort of peaceful approach, not the sort of concern for all the loss of life, not the concern for innocent loss of life and not the search for peace that actually is, is, is what we need now and consistently in the future. Um, okay, and Mark, uh, let's uh, head over to the United States then. Um, and what's uh, Biden doing? Well, this piece here we're seeing, 19 October Associated Press, starting with this, Republicans in Congress warn many Gaza refugees could be headed for the U.S. Here's why that's unlikely. And we'll move on from there. And I'll make a footnote that at the current time, that numerically speaking, at least, is unlikely because the Gazans can barely get out of Gaza, let alone how would they even get to the states if they wanted to. Anyway, reading from Will Weiser's piece here, I don't think Will's getting any wiser, as we'll see, 19 October, former President Donald Trump and other top Republicans want the U.S. to seal its borders against a potential mass exodus of Palestinians mass exodus, very questionable, fleeing war on the Gaza Strip, suggesting that a surge of civilian refugees could allow extremists into the country, but such an onslaught is highly unlikely. Reading more of Will scribbling here, people fleeing the fighting are largely barred from getting out of Gaza, that part's correct, and U.S. law already gives authorities broad leeway to deny people entry into the country if they present security risks. And get this one, cases of extremists crossing into the U.S. illegally are also virtually non-existent. The uh, likelihood of extremists, if you want to just simply call them terrorists and cartelists, uh, is actually very high, a very high likelihood. And in fact, they have been filtering into the U.S. through that largely open border. So that is an ignoramus statement of the highest order in the general sense. Anyway, going on from there, who wants to ban Palestinian refugees from the U.S.? Trump has been the most outspoken on this issue. The former president vowed uh, while campaigning in Iowa this week, uh, he wants to bar refugees from Gaza, immediately expand a Muslim travel ban that he imposed via an executive order during his one administration, pointing to the October 7 attacks and the taking of hostages by Iran-backed militant group host, uh, Hamas. That's, that sparked Israel's retaliation in the war in Gaza. Trump also suggested in an online post that, quote, the same people that raided Israel are pouring into our once beautiful USA through our totally uh, open southern border. I don't know where Mr. Trump is getting that. Um, there hasn't been any time or the wherewithal for such people to enter the U.S. even if they wanted to. And so there's kind of a co-mingling of issues here that doesn't really fit. This is really very misleading stuff that's being reported. Moving on from there, a couple of days later, 21 October, also from the illustrious Wire, Wire Service uh, Associated Press, now also having to do with the border, President Biden is dangling border security money in front of the faces of Republican congressmen that want our southern border secure in order to use that as an enticement to get billions more, hear that, billions more for both Ukraine and Israel. Israel already gets officially uh, $3.8 billion a year from the U.S. in foreign aid, and that's just the official amount. That doesn't include no interest and low interest loans and other grants and stuff. Um, so 
the congressmen are being put in an almost impossible position. Many of them campaign to get in office and they campaign or rather they they make announcements to stay in office wanting to secure the U.S. borders, the southern border. They don't want to betray their voters. And yet the only way they can get more money for for that, they're being told by Biden, is to hand over billions more for Ukraine and Israel. So a a, um, very tough choice for U.S. congressmen, but uh, it it just shows how these issues can be abused. And uh, it also explains why for a long time the U.S. has needed a law where each bill, each piece of legislation is limited to one subject, uh, at least in most cases. And that would go a long way from stopping this chicanery. So that's where that's at for now. Okay, thank you, Mark. Thank you for that. Uh, And uh, well, let's uh, see who's banging the war drums. Well, first of all, Rishi Sunak has been uh, doing a tour. We were talking about Jim's Cleverly uh, on uh, Friday's program. But Rishi Sunak, well, he's gone to meet uh, President Abbas uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who's the president of the Palestinian Authority, uh, he said that he expressed his deep condolences for the loss of civilian lives, lives in Gaza, uh, and they agreed that all parties should take steps to protect civilians. But again, the rhetoric is to minimize civilian casualties from Rishi Sunak. Uh, it's not about stopping civilian ca- casualties. That was uh, followed up with uh, him on a conference call with uh, with Joe Biden, uh, with uh, Trudeau from Canada, with uh, Macron from France, Olaf Schultz in Germany, uh, Maloney in Italy, uh, and so on. So it seems like the uh, diplomacy campaign for what? For uh, more warfare seems to be continuing. Grant Shapps is the same. The UK and the US are determinedly standing up to aggressors and terrorists and supporting our friends and partners in the fight for freedom and security. So uh, what's going on in Gaza is a fight for freedom and security. Uh, our nations were the first to provide Ukraine with the sustained support they need to beat Russia. And now we're working alongside regional partners to prevent escalation uh, and protect civilians in the Middle East. We're going to protect civilians in the Middle East by killing them. That seems to be the best way as far as Grant Shapps is concerned. Uh, and in order to, to uh, back that up, he uh, followed up with an article in The Express The UK has a pivotal role to play as a valued broker. Now, he didn't say as a valued peace broker, uh, and I'm going to argue it's as a valued arms broker. uh, And, uh, you know, people may dispute that or or, uh, argue with me about that. But please do, if you think I'm wrong, uh, read the article and decide for yourself. Uh, Lloyd Austin, then, uh, this is what he was saying, followed following detailed discussions with President Biden on recent escalations by Iran and its proxy forces across the Middle East region. Today, I directed a series of additional steps to further strengthen the Department of Defense posture in the region. So this was an announcement on Saturday. Uh, He said, first, I redirected the movement of the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group to the Central Command Area of Responsibility. This carrier strike group is an addition to the USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group which is currently operating in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. I've also activated the deployment of a terminal high altitude area defense battery, as well as additional Patriot battalions on locations throughout the region uh, to increase force projection for US forces. Uh, Finally, I've placed an additional number of forces uh, on uh, uh, preparation, that should say uh, that that's his mistake there, to deploy orders as part of prudent contingency planning to increase the readiness and ability to quickly respond as required. Uh, and so uh, the, it continues to ramp up. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Mark, uh, discussing the trajectory of the war in Israel. Yes, the American Enterprise Institute, as I announced last week, um, had this program, and I mentioned that I'd cover it, and I did uh, virtually. And the AEI is one of many think tanks on the infamous think tank row, Massachusetts Avenue, D.C., tons of think tanks there, Brookings and many other. Anyway, the program was decidedly biased in favor of Israel, but nevertheless very informative. And I think it gives us at least a little bit of a preliminary glance at where this is all headed, at what the ultimate outcome might be. This is some of my own writing here to uh, document what happened. Former CIA Persian Gulf military analyst Kenneth M. Polak speaking October 16 for this AEI program, a a notoriously neoconservative Washington think tank, he bluntly advocated nation building for Gaza. 
the Western version that we know of nation building, meaning that the war torn strip of Palestine, Palestinian land, excuse me, Palestinian land would be even more beholden to the dictates of Israel and the United States. The implication is that any remnants of Palestinian self-determination would be highly degraded, if not eliminated altogether. Polak, a Jewish resident scholar at AEI, and that's not gratuitous, we need to know the biases and orientations of the speakers, served on the National Security Council and formerly worked for the pro-Israeli Sabin Center of Brookings, one of several globalist think tanks there I mentioned. Brian Katulis, a senior fellow and vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute, also spoke and gave a somewhat more balanced view of the Israeli-Hamas-Palestinian turmoil Although the overall program was Israeli biased, I mentioned the moderator, AEI senior fellow Danielle Pletka, made no secret of her Jewish heritage while casting aspersions on the Palestinians in a dehumanizing tone. And she interviewed Polak and Katulas for this program, covered live online by UK Column, and the program was entitled Discussing the Trajectory of the War in Israel, a curious tag that omits the fact that most of the destruction in the Gaza Strip an enclave nearly the size of Manhattan, very densely populated. Uh, that's where most of the uh, uh, destruction is taking place, at least now. And the title even seemed to be a little slanted there. But uh, uh, Polak claimed at the time uh, when this program happened that while the risks of escalation of hostilities, he believes, are lower than many believe, uh, which is interesting, um, although he didn't substantiate that statement, and uh, so on and so forth. He did say that he believes Hamas will fight to the last Palestinian and to the last Hezbollah. They'll do that, quote unquote. And Iran, Polak added, did not order Hezbollah to join in the initial, ta initial attack against Israel on October 7th. He believes that was not ordered by Iran. He further opined that while Hezbollah may assume it can inflict enough casualties to get Israel, Israel to back down, that Lebanese political party and militant group, which has a, a paramilitary wing, he believes is no match for the Israeli military. Um, Mr. Katulis, for his part, um, equated what happened on 10-7 in Israel and said it was analogous to 9-11 in the United States back on 9-11-01. And Katulis added, you can't have normalization deals that ignore the millions of Palestinians who live there. So he was a little more sympathetic toward Gaza and all that. But Polak came back around, Mike, and basically emphasized that the future of Israel as he sees it, and he's been with the CIA uh, for several years, is nation building on Western terms once Hamas will be destroyed. He believes Hamas can and should be destroyed, and then they would bring about Western-directed nation-building uh, in terms of Gaza. And probably that, in my opinion, would harm the self-determination and democratic impulses of, of the Palestinians. So a very revealing program in what it might foretell for Gaza. Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, and well then, who's uh, advocating for peace? Well, over the week, or at the end of last week, uh, the uh, Cairo Summit for Peace uh, took place. Uh, and uh, many countries from the middle, well, every country from the Middle East represented the uh, EU, the UK, United States, all there. Uh, so I'm sure there must have been a peace deal done. Uh, but in fact, no, there wasn't. Uh, so this is one comment of many, many that, that uh, are out there. Uh, Western representatives wanted the statement, the final uh, communique, uh, to include only a condemnation of Hamas movement while they refused to condemn Israel for killing thousands of civilians in Gaza. Then the Arab side refused to condemn Hamas. Um, so there seems to have been the potential for some kind of uh, agreement at this, uh, but that was blown out by the uh, by the Europeans and the UK in particular. Uh, this is uh, the Egyptian presidential sp spokesman, of course, Egypt hosting this. Uh, some leaders wanted to condemn only one party and one action on a particular day, as if that narrative started on that day. Uh, the United Nations, uh, this was... Uh, uh, the UN were basically the only people that were calling for absolutely a ceasefire in this whole thing. Um, and uh, apparently nobody else was, but certainly nobody from the Western countries represented uh, wanted to see uh, any kind of condemnation right across the board and calls for a, uh, a ceasefire until this issue is resolved. 
Okay, we'll need to leave it there for now. Uh, and David, let's uh, move on to Scottish news. Yes, so uh, Police Scotland have faced a call for a political activism review. Uh, the reason for this is um, uh, Money Blackburn Mackenzie Policy Group uh, have had a look at the new LGBT plus allies toolkit, um, which uh, suggests that the members of Police Scotland should be treating some beliefs as more equal than others. Uh, the Herald reports the toolkit um, tells employees that gender identity isn't a decision or a choice. It defines this as a person's innate sense of their own gender, which may or may not correspond to the sex assigned signed at birth. Uh, gender-critical feminists, such as Murray Blackburn Mackenzie, said that biological sex is real and immutable, and that any, um, that any belief a person has in gender identity is an entirely separate matter. Following the landmark court case last year, this view is covered by the Equalities Act 2010. The toolkit urges those who are allies to, quote, deliver a short presentation to your team on non-binary or trans identities and to start the meeting with an enclosure moment, moment that can last between <coughs> 10 minutes and an hour. Um, it also says that those who sign up should evangelise their allyship, just in case anyone was in any doubt that this is a religion. Um, this uh, obviously takes us back to uh, Susan Deacon's uh, resignation from the Scottish Police Authority, an overseeing body for the police in Scotland, uh, in that she said, uh, in truth, however, I have increasingly become convinced that governance and accountability arrangements for policing in Scotland are fundamentally flawed in structure, culture and practice. And I include there's little more I can do to make these arrangements work effectively. I would suggest that the Scottish Government thinks afresh about how police services scrutinised and held to account and how or if a better separation between politics and policing uh, and indeed between the police service and those who oversee it can be achieved. Of course, uh, that was back in uh, 2019 and nothing's improved since. Uh, moving on from policing to education, um, the Scottish Government, uh, the SNP, at their uh, party um, conference announced a new Scottish Centre of Teaching Excellence. Um, now, this was uh, going to be uh, co-designed with our teachers and professional associations. It will put Scotland at the forefront of innovative research. Sounds lovely. Um, uh, the uh, only problem was, well, none of the teaching organisations knew anything about this. The General Teaching Council of Scotland found out about it in the press when it was announced at the party conference. Um, uh, and they said, uh, we have no further insight as to the role the of the centre beyond what was included in the Scottish Cabinet Secretary's press release. We will be seeking a meeting to discuss. So here we see ideas flowing at party conference to try and look good for five minutes of a soundbite, no substance. But if the substance, well, there might be substance, but it might be a negative substance because we have here the Scottish Union for Education warning the SNPC education is a tool to promote their political objectives from gender ideology, as in the police, to critical race theory. Instead, give teachers the resources to develop pedagogical and subject knowledge. So uh, some sense there from the Scottish Union of Education, if not from the SNP. <laughs> Indeed. Um, OK, uh, Mark, uh, let's come on to uh, green issues then. Yes. Uh it's getting more interesting in the climate change realm, that's for sure. Here we have from grist, the grist of the mill of propaganda, right? Scientists lay out a sweeping roadmap, a sweeping roadmap, not just any roadmap, for transitioning the U.S. off of fossil fuels, which is a moniker often attached to uh, crude oil that isn't necessarily true. And we'll talk about that. And this refers to a National Academies of Science study. And we'll go on to the next slide to get further into that. So this isn't just any other study. This is the uh, much ballyhooed National Academies of Science. So we got to get on bended knee here. This is all truth being spoken, of course. New report provides comprehensive plan to meet U.S. net zero goals and ensure fair and equitable energy transition. More of that globally sprinkled in there rather liberally. And going from there, we've got a little bit of writing on this that I wrote, I put together kind of a narrative. The National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine in a new 637 page tome 
is recommending sweeping changes in society's energy infrastructure with all the costly economic changes and regimented social adjustments adjustments, excuse me, that such policy overhauls would inevitably bring. The objective, mount the secularist summit of net zero carbon emissions in modern science's godless world of carbon-based life forms, which is no easy feat. While one wonders how to even accurately measure when that elusive atmospheric sweet spot is achieved and net zero is heralded as the new reality, the bottom line is that this outlook is based on a host of challengeable assumptions I wrote the most significant of which is the claim that crude oil, natural gas, and coal are actually fossil fuels, which I refer to as a hydrocarbon gruel cooked up in the earth via the excruciatingly slow decomposition of dinosaurs and other flora and fauna that thrived when the dinosaurs supposedly died off in a mass extinction some 65 million years ago. I feel like we're talking about the U.S. economic debt almost. Under such extreme time frames, it's presumed that whatever lies beneath the surface is all there is, that it will run out, and therefore we need to adopt sustainable energy sources since the wind will usually blow and the sun, for all intents and purposes, will always be there. Moving on from there, we'll kind of summarize uh, the summary uh, the, uh, uh, the summary of the new 637-page report, that is, it quotes Princeton professor Stephen Pakala, who chaired the committee that wrote the report. It quotes him as saying, recent energy and climate policies are revolutionary and unprecedented in both scale and scope, putting the U.S. on or close to a path uh, in terms of net zero emissions by mid-century. It used to be like 2030, and they keep moving it. Now they're saying mid-century. They are also designed to realize a fair and equitable energy transition, improve human health, big quotes there, and revitalize U.S. manufacturing, even bigger ones maybe. With so much at stake, the main challenge now is effective implementation of these policies. So they're getting a little impatient here. The report addresses how the nation can best overcome the barriers that will prevent a just energy transition. The report covers a broad set of societal objectives and technological sectors and includes over 80 recommendations targeting public and private actor or public and private sector engagement. As the summary of the report continues, low cost energy technologies, legislative support, and the national focus on equity and justice, it says, have, a, have created the opportunity for the U.S. to meet urgent needs created by the climate crisis. And this summary goes on to call it the, the war against um, climate change or the global fight against climate change, characterizing it almost as urgent as a war. And then lastly, kind of an interesting item for intellectual contemplation, are fossil fuels really formed from fossils? And I won't quote this much uh, except to say that it mentions um, Cornell researcher and late scientist Thomas Gold, who wrote a book, The Deep Hot Biosphere, The Myth of Fossil Fuels. And as I mentioned in my article that I'm developing, and as is mentioned here, there are other theories as to how crude oil forms and that it might, at least to a degree, be regenerative. And if so, uh, is it really non-sustainable? So climate change is very rooted in, in the idea of fossil fuels, and once you use them, they're gone. And even that premise is not absolutely secure, let alone the other climate change arguments, which is rarely discussed. So I thought I'd bring that up today. Okay, thank you, Mark. We'll uh, perhaps talk a little bit more about that in extra. David? I've been asking some questions of the politicians in this country about their approach to the uh, Gaza-Israel war. There's a lot of people making statements and they don't mean anything. Or they don't appear to mean anything. There's no precision. It's sound bites. So I've been trying to get some answers. So here's Stephen Bonner. And he said, Coatbridge is one of the first towns in Scotland to open our hearts and homes to the Ukrainian refugees and we will do the same for the Palestinians. So this is the next thing. Okay. Free Palestine. Okay, so I said, what does free Palestine mean? Can you give me a definition? Right? Because I mean, I don't even particularly live in free Scotland, but you know, no answer. So um, I did a little better with Chris Williamson, a firebrand, far left Labour MP. So he was complaining. He said, 
Zionists have been calling on the police to arrest me because of my criticisms of Israel. We'll show you why they were asking for his arrest. Am I support of Palestine? Cast your mind back 40 years. Can you imagine supporters of apartheid South Africa have been South Africa being taken seriously, let alone being invited to the police to complain. So here we've got Derbyshire police replying to someone asking for a private message to report uh, the alleged offence. So I responded to Chris and said, you must regret the tweet, surely. Now, I'll go to what I said in a minute. But the, the, the tweet was, Chris Williamson put out the alleged Israeli bombing of the hospital in Gaza, which we now know to be false, although the BBC weren't too interested in accuracy when they put it out. Um, not it was Sky News. So he saw this, it, it, it aligned with his worldview, so he said, Israel has forfeited any right to exist. That's what someone considered to be a hate crime or something and reported them to the police. Um, so I, I responded to him, I said, you must regret the tweet, surely. Communist China killed 100 million, uh, Communist Russia 60 million, Nazi Germany, Cambodia, Rwanda, all of these countries. No one said that they've forfeited every right to exist. But in this case only, you think this is the case. So he came back and he said, Israel was created in 1948 on land stolen from the Palestinians. It then stole more land in 1967 and continues to steal land and property to this day. It's the nature of the settler colonial entity. Okay. So you see the language here, um, it's not a country, it's an entity, right? Because it's, it's, it's removing any legitimacy. It's, it's, it's left-wing language to, uh, essentially, it's um, uh, witchcraft. It's to create the reality they want to see. Um, but notice that he didn't try to defend his position. He didn't try to claim that a strike by uh, an Islamic terror group hitting a hospital by accident, uh, removed Israel's right to exist. No, no, no. He abandoned that. Now it never had any right to exist. They cited 1948. Um, and he didn't cite 1947, interestingly enough, or any of the 28 years before 1948 when this situation was going on. All of that's down the memory hole. So I responded, you consider that it never had any right to exist, that the UN granting that right was wrong, and it should be eliminated by any means necessary. This means you lied when you claimed that the actions, the Islamic Jihad actions two days, ago, two days ago had forfeited the right to exist. And of course, at that point, he said nothing. I tried again, Claudia Webb MP, Labour MP. Uh, she said, I condemn Israel's war crimes on Gaza. We demand a ceasefire. Absolutely, we, we certainly do. Release of hostages, yes. A free Palestine and binding peace. So I asked the question, you demand binding peace. How does this work when there's no desire for peace on the part of the extremists? Who will bind them? And what does a free Palestine mean exactly? No response, none. Um, I tried again with an, uh, a chat with friend of the UK column and left-wing commentator Simon Elmer, got a little bit further. Um, I've I said I've been having this problem, I've been trying to get an answer to what's what's the, Free Palestine, and no one, none of these politicians will respond. He said uh, it might begin with opening the borders to the Gaza Strip, freeing the prisoners in Israel's jail, removing the settled towns in the West Bank, rebuilding the Bedouin villages in the Negev, returning Palestine to the Palestinians and compensating them for 75 years of occupation. So I said, well, immediately there are problems here. On the 7th of October, the borders to Gaza were open. It did not go well for humanity on that day. What makes you think it will be different this time? Secondly, returning Palestine to the Palestinians. Who do you mean and what land do you mean? All right, so he responded, if you include Palestinians and humanity, which I do, he meant to that, um, it, it, um, it hasn't been going well since 1948. Actually, it's not, come to that in a minute. Uh, but if you mean Palestine uh, was created by a mandate of the British and its borders are no more real than those claimed by the religious books of the Bronze Age 11th tribe, I agree. So this is not a solution. So I said, but you know, it's not, no, it's not 1948, it's 1920. Why miss 28 years of the story? And none of this is addressing the issue. So I didn't even get very far with Simon, and he's he's by far the best of the left-wing commentators in so many areas. 
Uh, he said, if you're arguing that after 75 years of occupation, the idea of Israelis and Palestinians living together as they once did is a pipe dream, I agree, and that two states, not one state in a concentration camp is a solution, but that won't solve the problem of US imperialism. So the problem's moved again. It's now US imperialism. And I said, uh, why, um, why then did the proposition fail on Arab refusal to countenance the idea in 1937 and again in 1947? And of course, it's not 75 years of anything. It's 103. Why do you miss an entire generation of the story? Because that shows the narrative is false. So that was my attempt to get some clarity on what is actually being proposed by Free, Free Palestine. I didn't get anywhere, but I'm going to keep asking the question because it's a question that needs to be asked, needs to be answered. And the people who are saying the words need to be specific. Because if, as in the demonstrator that I showed you earlier, they mean the complete and total destruction of Israel and wiping it from the map permanently and giving the people within it no choice but military defeat and who knows what else. Expulsion at best, death presumably being one of the options. If that's what the position actually is, I think the people advocating it should at least be honest about it. Now, I've got a couple of um, little things to throw in before we finish. Um, that show different aspects of this. Have we got time? Just about, David. Maybe do right, one of Right, OK, them. the short clips. So the first is the son of the leader of Hamas. He's now living in America, he's become a Christian, and he's abandoned all these principles, but he's talking about why he did this. Uh, you know, I was born at the heart of Hamas leadership, you know, and I know them very well. Uh, they don't care for the Palestinian people, they don't regard uh, the human life. And uh, I saw their brutality firsthand uh, back in 1996 when I spent about a year and a half in Megiddo prison. You know, they killed so many Palestinian people at that time. And this is when I decided that I, I cannot be together with this uh, movement. In fact, I asked myself a question, what if they become a ruling party at some point? What will they do if they succeed? in destroying Israel and building their state. What will they do? They will kill our people. And this was the first question, you know, that actually I had to be honest with myself, even though Hamas gave me advantages. You know, I was like a prince in that world. And but I did not like them, you know, and uh, I turned against uh, even my own blood, you know, because this is how much I did not like Hamas. And today, 25 years later, they are the rulers of Gaza and we see what they are capable of doing. So that gives you an insight that at least some of the people in the Palestinian Arab side are seeing that uh, this, what is often promoted as being the gallant resistance, nothing of the sort, and are a huge burden and blight on their own people. Um, next, we've got uh, a gentleman trying to join the Palestinian club at a university in New Zealand. Can I be straight honest with you? I'm actually an Arab who live in Israel. Yeah. And I don't know what people are telling you or not telling you. I don't know if any of those people who are in that club even speaks Arabic like me as an Arab. There are problems. I will never say that there isn't a problem. But I have to be honest with you. This is a brainwash. Wallahi, it's a brainwash. I can vote, I can get elected. I become the president of Israel if I want right now to nominate myself, whether I win or not, that's different. I don't have a different boss system. I don't have different judge system. In fact, an Arab judge, an Arab judge in Israel, Supreme Court judge, sent to prison a Jewish prime minister and Jewish president. I don't want you to believe me. I want you to check the name, Salim Jubran, in an apartheid that cannot happen. I have freedom of movement. I came to New Zealand with my Israeli passport as an Arab. No one can stop me. And by the way, it doesn't mean that racism does not exist or discrimination. But you want to tell me that also in New Zealand, racism and discrimination does not exist. Unfortunately, it exists everywhere. And this is very much the view that I've got talking to uh, the Arab population within Israel. This is, the, this is generally speaking the view they have. And this, this man's showing this, this woman who knew very little, despite being uh, working for the Palestinian club, that the, the, the flyers she had saying it's an apartheid state was simply not true. And this is just a smear to, again, delegitimize the state. Um, now, on the, on the opposite side of that, 
right? There are many problems, and I want to get maybe an extra time to some of what some of the problems in Israeli society, in a Jewish society. So this bit, this next clip is a Jewish journalist who's been speaking out in favour of basically showing compassion and concern for the Palestinian civilians in Gaza, uh, showing empathy for them and saying there should be a ceasefire. So th this is someone taking essentially the UK column position from inside orthodox uh, Jewish parts of Israel. And, uh, well, he'll describe what he's been facing. ישראל נמצאת בימים קשים מאוד. המרות מהמתקפה בדרום הופכות את הבטן. האבדות קשות, ישראל בטראומה. אבל מהר מאוד הטראומה והרגשות האלה חצו את הקווים ומוציאות מאיתנו הישראלים את מה שנזרע פה לאורך שנים והתעצם בממשלת הכהניזם הקיצוני שעלתה לשלטון. גזענות, לאומנות ועליונות יהודית. That's what he's facing, advocating for peace. There are many, many problems in all aspects of this, in all societies that are part of this problem. The core, the core of it is the inability of people to live together in peace and love their neighbours, even if the neighbours are different. Uh, and I want to finish on this image of a wee Jewish lad and a wee Arab lad, just to make the point, it need not be this way. It's been this way since 1920, not 1948, but it need not be this way, and that's what we should be pushing for and working for. Okay, we need to leave it there for today, um, and uh, we will have more in extra in a few, as quickly as we possibly can, because we're somewhat over time. Um, but uh, thank you very much for that, David and Mark, for today, and uh, we will see you for extra in a couple of minutes. Uh, we have an interview going out at 1 p.m. Uh, tomorrow, uh, do join us for that, uh, but otherwise, if you're not joining us for extra, we'll see you at 1 p.m. on Wednesday. Bye-bye.